Live from the Business Radio X studio inside Renaissance Bank, the bank that specializes in understanding you. It's time for North Fulton Business Radio. And hello again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of North Fulton Business Radio. I'm John Ray. And folks, we are broadcasting from inside Renaissance Bank in beautiful Alpharetta. And if you're looking for a bank that's big enough to handle all your needs as a small business, they're small enough to do it in a personal way, but they've got a rock solid balance sheet. They're safe and sound. That combination exists at Renaissance Bank. At least that's what I've found for me and the clients I work with. So if that's what you're looking for, you need a different banking experience than what you currently, uh, I was going to say enjoy, but don't enjoy, <laughs> uh, go to renaissancebank.com, find one of their local offices and be in touch. And I think you'll be glad you did. Renaissance Bank, understanding you, member FDIC. And now I want to welcome Richard Morgan. Richard is partner with Morgan and DeSalvo. Richard, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for being here. Let's talk a little bit about you and your work. How are you serving folks at Morgan and DeSalvo? Uh, thank you. Uh, Richard Morgan, Morgan and DeSalvo. We have an estate planning boutique firm, uh, lawyers that assist uh, individuals and families with dealing with incapacity uh, and eventual death and passing their assets and controlling their affairs when they can no longer do it. Got it. Let's... um. Let's define I mean, everyone I think assumes they know what estate planning is. Let's let's clear that up. What how should people look at and define estate planning? Estate planning uh it's I always give my clients a 1 minute review. Um so right now you control all aspects of your life. Mm-hmm. Financial, healthcare, do whatever you want. Don't break the law, don't hurt anyone, you're free. But what if you cannot do it in capacity and death. There is a state law court-based system that deals with all that stuff. It's not very pleasant. It's not something you'd like to do if you had a choice, but the state law allows us to essentially privatize that entire system, almost the entire system. So you get to decide uh, who's in charge and what's going to happen. That ends up with a series of legal documents. There's two agency documents, which are uh, a, fin- a power of attorney. There's a financial asset. You appoint an agent to assist you. There's one for healthcare or body decisions. That's called an advanced directive for healthcare. Uh, and then you have a primary state plan document, which is either a will or something called a revocable living trust. If you have a revocable living trust, you still need a will, but it's a small little will. We call it pour over will. It's just it's a little coordinating document that says, take all the assets that go to my probate estate and put them into my trust because that's the main doc. So power of attorney, healthcare directive, will, and you may or may not have a revocable living trust. Mm-hmm. Got it. What, what's the biggest misconception people have about estate planning? Great question. I would say that um, probably the biggest misconception is it's a product. Uh, it's standardized. It's simple. Uh, so I can get it done cheaply or online or whatever, which is fine. And you can do it if you want. We're happy for anyone to do whatever they want. But at least estate planning done well, uh, thought out. Uh, you actually want it to work. You want it to work well. You want the people that you really want in charge to do it. You don't want anyone to fight. You want low cost, low hassle. Um, you need to have someone think through it and assist you thinking through it and getting it done properly. And for that, you need an estate planner to help you get it done. Yeah. Um I would think you lose out a lot on 
the degree you can have flexibility in a document that that tries to anticipate everything that can happen in the future, which is hard, right? And which is Correct. which which is uh, where your talents really come in, right? It is 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 tr- trying to think through all the possibilities. That's correct. So one of the one of the things that's kind of funny in a in a client meeting or potential client meeting is I ask lots of questions and like, well, I never thought about that. I said, well, our job as state planners is to think about all the what ifs. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if something else happens? Usually individuals only think about what is obvious and right in front of their face. We think about that and about 20 other things that may happen down the road. Mm -hmm. And which is why you want somebody that's got the experience you have. You've been at it for how long now, Richard? Since 1987. Wow. Long, long time. Wow. Um, I'm I'm just curious as an aside why, why um you went through law school you kind of, you went through uh, uh had a lot of different options as to what part of the law you would focus on why estate planning It's good great question uh <laughs> so I was I basically grew up my father in a furniture store my grandfather in a little clothing store uh if there had been an entrepreneurial uh major in college that's what I would have done there wasn't one back when I went to school um so I was a general business major. I didn't want to be a doctor. I wanted to be an engineer. So I wanted to be some kind of on the business side. Went to my dad and I said, uh, I'm a junior in college. I'm a general business major. That means you're basically a salesman. I don't want to be a salesman. What are my options and what I should major in? Mm-hmm. He goes, well, if you do accounting and law, you can do anything. The combination is tax. Let me tell you something. If, if suburban dad gets in trouble with the IRS, they'll pay you their life savings to stay out of jail. I'm like, okay, well, that's what I'll do. Accounting, accounting course is my hardest class is by far, not even close, mm-hmm. uh, in undergrad. And then in law school, was it when you, University of Georgia, undergrad in law. Tax classes were by far my hardest classes in law school. Um, and then I got out. I want to do either business, tax, something like that. Um, and then... Uh, basically became a general tax lawyer. After about five years, when I was going to go to a different law firm, I ended up going to a tax boutique firm called, uh, was Merritt and not Merritt and Watson. Mm-hmm. Um, and they specialized in estate planning. That was one of the three or four things that I did. And so we started doing a lot more of that. Uh, and then when I went on my own in 1995, uh, I had a marketing guy and he said, well, you got to specialize in something. I said, why? I'm good at everything I'm doing. I'm good at fighting with the IRS. I'm good at estate planning. I'm good at business transactions. Why should I give it up? He said, well, if you specialize, then people seek you out and you get really good at it, get really deep on something. So mm-hmm. tax controversy, I don't want to litigate. I'm not a, I'm not a court person, but estate planning can do everything. So I ended up just doing the estate planning stuff. And um, what I realized about estate planning, I kind of fell into it that I'm really good at it. It's because it's basically problem solving. Mm. And the way I figured this out later in life when my brain works, a lot of things are white and black. I understand there's gray, but mm-hmm. I want white and black in my head. And if something doesn't fit my idea of what's right, I get upset about it. And I see this in my son, actually. I get upset about it. I want to fix it. So it's like breathing. So I want to solve problems like breathing. I don't mm-hmm. even think about it. I don't have to try. I just, my brain wants to fix mm. stuff. Yeah, I like that. And, and, Estate planning presents some pretty significant problems. I mean, for 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 families, and that's something we're going to talk about. Just the complexity of families today. Uh, so, and we were, uh, you and I were chatting about this before we came on the air. So let's talk about that complexity 
and and how you untangle some of those issues when it comes to estate planning. Let's talk about what specifically what we're talking about there. So today, the topic is going to be on blended families and families without um, children. So in the estate planning process, uh, let's say someone comes in our office, we take them as they come. Um, we sit down, we have a conversation, say, tell me what's going on. And if it's a husband and wife with children by a prior marriage, so this is a second or third marriage, uh, or they're just a, a married couple, or could be non-married actually, with no children. Mm-hmm. The goal is to take care of their spouse, make sure they're financially secure, but they also want to make sure that their eventual desires to take care of their kids or their loved ones happens after the second of their deaths. The problem is when they come in and they say, okay, here's what I want to do. I want to give, it's a common situation, I want to give my assets to my spouse, let my spouse use them, and then at the second death, I want my assets to go to my children. I want my spouse's assets to go to my spouse's children. Isn't that great? And I say, well, that's nice. That's Uh not how it works. Because the moment you die and you give your assets to your spouse, if you give them to them outright without, without holding back strings on it, all bets are off. There's no guarantee anything's going to happen thereafter. You mm-hmm. hope it's going to happen, and it might actually happen, but there's no guarantee at all Right, it'll happen. So then that we have this sometimes difficult, difficult conversation where one spouse says, I need the money. The other spouse says, well, I've got to make sure in some way, in some manner, that my children or other loved ones will get some of these assets at some point. So we walk through those options. That has to be a tricky conversation. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's probably the most difficult conversations we have in estate planning. Mm, got it. And this is a increasingly common issue. Yes, uh, it is. Yeah. And, and so what... And I would imagine that you have probably have, um, speaking of the folks that want to go on the internet and think it's, that's where the, all the answers are, um, to get an agreement, uh, there, um, that's probably where you get a lot of clients, right? That they've tried this and maybe then they start thinking through what they received off the internet and they realize it doesn't work. That's correct. Um, yeah, so a lot of people believe that's that one misconception that stuff is easy, it's a product, whatever, I just get it done. Mm-hmm. And then some people try to get it done either with on their own um, DIY on the internet or they go to a lawyer that's not really a specialist in the area and they, they're they finding out through the conversation, either the, trying to do it or the conversation with the lawyer, that they don't get it uh, and that this individual gets that there's some issues here and they're not getting their desires met, their concerns right. uh, met. Uh, and the reason it's becoming a lot bigger is because just in our society, more people are getting divorced, more people are getting remarried, more people are living together that aren't married. Kids before our marriage is just a lot, a higher percent of society mm-hmm. meets that criteria. So they all have the same concern. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, folks, we're here chatting with Richard Morgan. He's partner in his own firm, Morgan and DeSalvo, uh, here in the North Fulton area. So, Richard, let, let's let's talk about how spouses should handle this situation? I mean, when, what kind of questions they need to be asking, when do they need to start having the conversation? Do they need to do it even before they get married? That's a good, that's a, that's a, that's a a good one. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's like, that's like having a prenuptial agreement, right? Exactly. That's a very uncomfortable conversation, but yes. So, 
Yes, most people won't, and they don't because it's not pleasant. But right. It's the same issue. It's it is part of the issue. It's one of the things that you do the planning. We don't do prenuptial agreements, but that's recommended. Sure. Um, so if you bring in wealth, your spouse brings in their own wealth, and the question is, I want to protect it. Well, you can. The prenuptial agreement has two purposes. Uh, one is to deal with if you end up in a divorce situation. The other is upon your death. Mm-hmm. And most of them don't deal with death, but that's what I do for a living as I deal with these issues. Mm-hmm. And so we're always, when we see someone with a prenup, that's where we look. And sometimes it says something, sometimes it says nothing. Um, but that helps. Then the other option is you need, you absolutely need to stay plan. That's for sure. You may or may not need the prenup. Uh, the prenup is like an extra protection, extra wall of protection to get you what you want with no litigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can tell you that any law firm, um, anyone who gets into litigation uh, in an estate or trust situation, it's kind of like a divorce on steroids. It is nasty. It is not pleasant at all. So part of our job and part of the job of the prenup is to avoid a dispute because if you get into a dispute, People think, oh, it's just, you know, we'll just get through this. It'll be quick. It'll be, it won't be that expensive. And it's exactly the, the ultimate opposite. Mm. It is time-consuming. It is expensive. It is mentally draining. Mm-hmm. You just want it over at some point, and it's just exhausting. Mm. So, okay, so in in most cases, a couple's going to come to you. They haven't had the conversation before. They don't have a um, – uh, their estate is not set up – to handle or, or anticipate the marriage and the children they brought to the marriage, et cetera. So how do you walk couples through this process and thinking this through and the questions that are important for them to, to weigh? You've referred to a few of them. Yes. Yeah. So what we normally do in a meeting is to go through that one minute, just, okay, what's the state planning? Then we're going to go through, um, they've usually given us a little checklist. So I know that they're a blended family or they have no children we say, okay, in your situation, there's always, actually, let me back up here a second. There's always three questions with a married couple or the um, couple, they want to do it together. Mm-hmm. There's three three questions you had to answer. Number one, in the big picture, how did the assets pass at the first of their deaths? Number two, how did the assets pass at the second of their deaths? And number three, what is the primary state plan document where the answers to questions one and two are located? Is it a will, revocable living trust? In these situations, blended families, of the time, if not more, a revocable trust is going to be the right answer because it's going to protect the plan and prevent a a post-death dispute. There's lots of other reasons as well, but that's it's almost an absolute no-brainer to do revocable trust. So kind of get that one on the side. Mm -hmm. How you end up passing to the children, that is independently significant. You can do it simply, uh, cooler, and more protective. There's lots of different options. The huge question in a blended family or no kid situation is how you pass the assets at the first death. That is the elephant in the room because if you give all the assets outright, and this is an option this is option one, mm-hmm. it's three options. Option one is you give all the assets to the spouse outright. you basically trust your spouse. Mm-hmm. Either just, I trust my spouse no matter what. And, or you know what? I favor my spouse and I just don't care. I don't have enough assets to care about the other. I just don't have the ability to have enough assets to care mm-hmm. about protecting the children. Uh, the other, I just don't like the other options, or I just don't care. Um, but in some way, you're giving up control if you go all outright. It's absolutely simple. It's no question. It's simple. It's what everybody wants to do when they walk in. It just isn't. It may or may not be the right answer. Mm. Second option 
which is where a lot of our clients end up, is they give some assets to the children. They favor one or the other, either the spouse or the kids, and then they give them something, the other one, the one they're not favoring, something. So if they're favoring the spouse, they're giving the kids something at their death. Uh, If they're favoring the kids, they give the spouse something at their death, and they give the rest to the one they're favoring. Um, and then the third option, that way, you know, they're getting something mm-hmm. and if they don't get anything else, you know, I'm sad, but I'm deceased and it, it is what it is, but at least I know they got something and it's okay. Mm. The third option is you choose one or two, the first two, either all outright to the spouse or some combination of giving everyone something. And you say, to the extent that I give anything to my spouse, I'm going to pass at least part of it in a little sub trust to the spouse. If you give it to the spouse in a using it, utilizing a trust structure, mm-hmm. um, then you retain control, mm. some control. Now you can have watered down control by having the spouse be in charge as the trustee, so they're in charge and they're the beneficiary. Whatever they don't use, where does the assets go? They go to the kids. Why? Because that's what the trust says happens. Mm. The problem with that, we do a lot of them like that. The problem with it though is if the spouse is in charge and the sole beneficiary then they could in a, essentially overuse or gut out that trust while they're alive one way or another, which means they could undo your protection for the kids. So the one that would be the most guaranteed, most protective, would have assets passed to spouse in trust and not have the spouse be a trustee. Now, for, you could have a third-party trust company, other people. Mm-hmm. Usually a trust company is better because if you have other, other individuals, that could end up causing a post-death dispute and a lot of dysfunction. Uh, so you oftentimes will have a trust company is in charge. Now, that oftentimes is a bridge too far for clients. They say, well, I can handle passing assets to my spouse in trust if they're in charge, because usually it goes both ways. Mm-hmm. They say, okay, I had access to everything before the first spouse died, and now you're telling me I got to talk to someone else to get access to my assets, and mm. they don't like that. So it's the best way to go, but they may not like it. Well, let me... Let me- Jump in right there and ask a question about that. What about the co-trustee situation? How do, how, that's that's a great great point. That would be effectively like having another trustee. That's a combo. You could go that route. Yeah, that's, like spouse and trust company. You could do that. Yeah, okay. that, that's effectively. That would be similar to having a third party, but you're saying, well, I want my wife, my wife, wife or husband involved. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, they're going to have to agree with the trust company. The way we deal with that, you can do co-trustees, but the way we deal with that is the ability for the beneficiary to change from one trust company to another at will, mm-hmm. which which gets rid of, after you get you get used to it, it's not stressful anymore because if one trust company is not acting appropriately, you just change them to another one, but it keeps everyone acting reasonably. As long as everyone's acting reasonably, it's all good. When someone goes off the range and isn't acting reasonably, we have a problem, but mm-hmm. it self-corrects if it's flexible enough. Got it. Um, so what, where, do you recommend the use of, um, I know everybody's situation is different, so let's just put that out there as a blanket statement for this conversation, mm-hmm. right? But do you recommend the use of uh, life insurance to help uh, get through some of these issues? That's a great point. So part of the issue, the primary, real, the real primary issue is that the spouses 
or the non-married couple, whatever, they want to make sure that their mate, their loved one, their spouse, is, t- is financially secure when they're gone. Mm-hmm. That, that's They want to make sure they're okay. The kids are hopefully making a living. They're going to be okay. And I'd like to benefit them. But I want to make sure that my spouse is not going to live in the street. They're not going to be destitute. They're going to be financially secure. Mm-hmm. The question becomes, are there enough assets to pass around? So if you go with option number two, and you say, okay, I'm going to give my kids some now at my death, and I'm going to give my spouse the rest or vice versa. I want to make sure that's enough. And the spouse may say, that's nice, I get it, but I need all those assets to make sure I'm financially secure. So one way to deal with that is to increase the amount of assets available so that the spouse can get more assets so that everyone can be okay. So you kind of create wealth via life insurance. So there's enough to go around. Right, right. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So, um, so you mentioned the willed revocable living trust, and let's clarify when those two get used and what the primary document needs to be okay. there in this situation. So, we used to as a as a law practice. Um, I've always been about uh, individual. Everything's individualized. There are a lot of people. If you go on the internet, you read a lot about everyone needs a revocable living trust. You got to pull your, you got to put all your assets into it, or it's worthless. That is totally bogus. Um, Serving my language. <laughs> no, uh, I, I tell us get, how you really feel, Richard. I'll, but that's what we want right here. So thank so you for that. I ended up. I have a strong opinion about this stuff. I'm very client centered, mm-hmm. uh, and so I want to do what's right for the client. I want to educate the client, let them make a choice. But when anyone says absolute everyone, mm-hmm. uh, it just kind of bothers me. Yeah. Uh, because that's not reality. Um, so a will, and we used to be, I would say we were probably 60% wills, 40% revocable trust for our clients probably five, 10 years ago. Right now we're probably 70% revocable trust, 30% wills, and that's probably life's getting more complicated. People are getting older. Just a lot of different things come up and a lot more people blended families and the like, and they need these. It's like not even a choice. They need mm. it. Um, basically, when you have a will-based structure, you're going through probate. And that's not, in Georgia, a huge deal most of the time. Georgia, in a relative basis, is uh, what I refer to as a simple probate state. It doesn't mean it's nothing. I said that to a client one time, and then the, it was a woman and her, I think her niece, uh, and I had told them, like, Probate isn't that it's simple, relatively. It's not that bad. And so then the, the aunt dies, the niece comes in and says, well, you said it was easy, so that means we're done. I'm like, you haven't done anything yet. <laughs> you still have to do some stuff. You've got to figure right. out what assets are owned, what debts are owed, notify the IRS, file final uh, income tax returns, pay off your creditors and distribute. you still got to do stuff. Mm-hmm. It just isn't that complicated relative to other states like Florida, New York, New Jersey, Chicago, uh, Illinois and California are horrible. Uh, and there's some in between. We're mm-hmm. on the simple side. However, there are absolutely some reasons why going the revocable trust route can be better. Avoiding mm-hmm. probate can be better. One, it's a hassle. It yeah. is some hassle. And that's kind of what I call taking one for the team. And as people get to be about, I'd say about late 40s, 50s, they start to see the incapacity and death is a thing. It's not theoretical it actually happens to people especially with covid and so uh going the revocable trust route it just makes life it's harder on it's a little bit more expensive for the client a little bit more hassle for the client because of how they own their assets but it's better and easier on their loved ones and so Mm -hmm. they they start people that come to me a lot they want to 
do good for their loved ones. They want to make life easier for their loved ones. And so they start to switch over from wills to revocable trust. And with blended families, the reason you want to avoid it is because it is relatively easy. It's relatively easy to start a fight in a probate court, which is where a will is probated. So if someone is disgruntled, doesn't like what's going on, they can start a fight pretty quick and freeze the entire process. Whereas with the revocable trust, if you own your assets right and you avoid probate, they cannot freeze the process. It keeps on a rocking. Um, and the chances of having a post-death dispute with a at least a well-done revocable trust is as close to zero as you can get. I've never had it happen. It's, really? Yeah, it's not. So it, th- this is the law school analysis, but yeah. um, I've never heard anyone say this was wrong. <laughs> uh, with the will... You have to prove, to break it, you have to prove something was wrong during the signing ceremony. So by 20 minutes, was there undue influence, duress, uh, forgery? Something was wrong during the signing ceremony. Mm-hmm. You didn't have the right witnesses, whatever. You didn't do it properly. With the revocable living trust, it's kind of like a living, breathing document. Let's say, uh, so it's with the revocable trust, you have to prove something was wrong from the moment of signing until the moment of death. So let's say there was duress. Someone had a gun to your head and said, sign, or I'm going to shoot you. Well, guess what? They left the room. Right. And you could tear it up. Sure. But you didn't. Mm -hmm. So you lived with it. And so if you really didn't like it, you would have changed it. And then we have a a provision in Georgia. Georgia absolutely follows them, called an interim clause. Some states follow them, some don't. We have in all of our wills and trusts. Some lawyers don't like that position. I think it's beautiful. Um, That provision basically says, there is no fighting. Hey, I spent a bunch of money and a bunch of time doing this. There's no fight. And if you fight, you get zero. Mm. And the courts will uphold it. Yeah. So basically, there's no fight. And that's called a what kind of clause? An interarum clause. That's a fancy way to say peace. Yes, <laughs> right. peace. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the risk with that, and hopefully none of these people are listening, uh, the risk with that is a bad actor understands that, gets uses undue influence, duress, whatever it is, puts it in a will, uh, gets it all done, puts it in front puts it in front of someone who is not all there, not all mentally competent, mm-hmm. has them sign, doesn't know what they're signing, and to protect themselves, the bad actor. Got it. Got it. Mm. So you'd have to prove in court that the you have to go to someone's gotta take one for the team uh, and prove in court that that will is invalid. It's almost impossible to break a revocable trust. Um, it is possible, though, if there's real crime. Is this, if there's real fraud, real criminal activity, yeah, it's possible. And yet expensive, as you said. It's, it's expensive. And time-consuming, yeah. Correct. Right. Um, so, again, everyone's situation is different. But, let, I mean, let's let's talk about just the, 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 the different – steps and maybe you think you've covered this adequately if you have that's great but just the steps of making sure that your spouse is taken care of versus uh not only your children but sometimes spouse's children too right so right. so let's just talk about the the steps that people need to walk through to make sure that their wishes are fulfilled so again, there's these three big questions they have to answer. Yep. Two of them are more normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second and third. Second being, well, how do we pass the assets to the kids or whoever's going to get it the second death? There's multiple ways to do that. Outright, just give it to them simple. 
short-term trust if they're young. Mm-hmm. It's in, only in trust until they're old enough, and then it turns over to the kids if they're old enough. That's only if the, you know people die, the clients die prematurely, and there's kids under a certain age, 25, 30, whatever the ages they pick. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third option is what we call long-term trust, where each child share is in trust for life. We do a ton of this. Um, and the reason you give each child their own little sub-trust, and they can make, when their child's old enough, you can make their child their own trustee of their own trust. So basically, they're in charge. They're the beneficiary. They're the one benefiting. They're in control. There's no one looking over their shoulder but them. Um, and the reason you do it, the, there's three reasons, but the elephant in the room for them is asset protection. Mm. No one on earth can touch those assets but that child. And I mean no one. No bankruptcy court, no spouse in divorce, no personal guarantees, judge of creditors, nothing. No one gets in. Um, we've had, I think, six lawyers contact us when someone came to them and gave them a cock and bull story about something horrible happening and fraud and all kind of stuff about these trusts. And they got to break them. Um, and after I gave them the right information and we told them where to look in the documents, I never heard back from them again. I've, mm. only, I've never heard back, not one time. Mm. Uh, there's nothing they can do. So that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And then usually at the, at the uh, grandchild level, it'll go out at the grandchild level unless the child acts to extend. The last option, which wasn't possible until July 1, 2018, there's a rule called the Rule Against Perpetuities, which is the time lim- effective time limit on how long a trust can last, mm-hmm. that it was changed from effectively a safe harbor of 90 years to a safe harbor of 360 years, which means it's basically irrelevant. We can make trust last as long as we want now before they had to pretty much go out at the grandchild level. So now we have a fourth option called dynasty trust planning. And for that's for wealthier individuals yeah. who we think there'll be a bunch of assets left at the child's passing. And so we just keep these trusts, these long-term trusts, just keep going generation and generation uh, to keep them asset protected. And there's no estate tax, there's no mm-hmm. tax when it goes generation to generation. Assuming you have this a sufficient, this exemption called the a generation skipping tax exemption, a GST tax exemption. But effectively, uh, we can keep the assets protected. And to the extent legally possible, no more taxes ever until the assets come out uh, and someone dies owning them. Still going to pay income tax annually, but there's no more wealth Tax number of wealth transfer taxes, like gift to state and GST taxes. Well, my takeaway from all that, and I would hate to have to pass a test on what you just said, Sorry. but <laughs> but my takeaway is that well, actually, it's good, and I'll tell you why. My takeaway is um, people need to stay in touch with you, their attorney, or whoever their attorney is, right? They and 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 that really raises the question of family circumstances change. Um, it's not just that people get divorced; they get divorced, but um, uh, but internal dynamics of a family change. And so how you think about your estate changes. How often do you need to, uh, someone that's gone through the planning process with you, how often do they need to come back and do a checkup and a check-in with you as to, and may possibly make changes? Our kind of best practices uh, recommendation, you say every three years now, we say every three to five years. Mm-hmm. And the reason isn't, that we're going to update your plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think it's just time to come back. Let's review, make sure it still works for you, that you're still good with it. But what we end up, the reason the time is we think you should update, especially your power of attorney document. Mm. Um, the law changed in July 1, 2017, which made it more powerful. 
but it's an agency document. Both the health care and the power of attorney are agency documents. You're appointing a legal helper or an agent to assist you while you're alive. The issue is, for the, especially with the power of attorney, so let's say your agent goes into a bank, financial institution, insurance company, government agency on your behalf. And the this third party, this person's coming to them and wants to mess with your account, your assets, mm. your account. Mm-hmm. They're like, who are you and why are you here? Well, I have this piece of paper. Like, well, I didn't sign that piece of paper. Why are you here? Like, you know, think about all the internet, people stealing money from all these people on the internet. Mm-hmm. Well, th- now this person comes in, they want to, mess with someone else's account and they're paranoid. Right. So the older the document gets, the more paranoid the third party gets that maybe this is not the person you trust anymore. Mm. You put them in years ago. So the goal is to keep it fresh, relatively new. Then that third party can say, okay, you trusted them. I'll, you just put them in your docs. I'll, you trusted them. I'll trust them. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of why we wanted to update it. As long as you're there to update your power of attorney, let's do your healthcare document as well at the same time. That usually isn't as critical because normally doctors really want to talk to someone. And so even if it's 10 years old, normally they'll go ahead and talk to them and because they want to talk to somebody. If sure. The, if the, if the patient's incompetent, but we think it's just good to go ahead and get both done every three to five years. Yeah. Wow. Great advice here from Richard Morgan. Uh, Richard is uh, the founder, the partner of Morgan and DeSalvo. Uh, Richard, wow, this has been great. Lots of great information and uh, things for people, I think, to think about. So, uh, and I'm quite certain that folks are going to have more questions. Uh, so let's tell them how they can be in touch with you, get more information. Get Richard Morgan at Morgan and DeSalvo. Our website is uh, Morgan, M-O-R-G-A-N, DeSalvo, D-I-S-A-L-V-O.com. And we have a ton of information, educational information on our website. I do, I used to do it monthly. Now, maybe every other month. I've been doing it for probably 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of information uh, on our website. If you, want, if you want to learn some more, you can also call us at 678 720 It's an extension one. Talk to uh, our assistant, and she's incredible. Um, and we, basically have free initial meetings. So you can come in, we just ask you to fill out some information and bring it in with you or actually send it to us beforehand so I can prep for the meeting. Yeah. Uh, and then we have a conversation and we go from there and figure out what, what you need and if we're the kind of person that can help you. Terrific. Richard Morgan, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Hey folks, just a uh, quick idea for you. If you've got some dysfunctionality in your business that involves uh administrative tasks that are piling up that you're spending too much time on, or maybe you're doing your own bookkeeping and you really don't need to be doing that as a, uh, to run your business effectively. Um, the folks over at office angels can help. They have a whole team of angels that, uh, have all their different, they have their own expertise, their various expertise, and they can fly in, get the job done and fly out. And they do it on an ongoing or as needed basis. And the chief executive angel over there, SES Cabido, I've known her for a long time, and she's terrific, as is, as is her team. And I know that personally because I use their services. So if you need some help with your business and help your business run more effectively, you can go to officeangels.us to learn more and check them out there. But I encourage you to give them a call, 770 442 
888-888-8846 and let them know that we sent you. And a couple quick uh, updates here, folks. Uh, I've got a book coming out later this year. It's called The Price and Value Journey, Raising Your Confidence, Your Value, and Your Prices Using the Generosity Mindset Method. It's going to be out later this year. And if you want more information on that, go to pricevaluejourney.com. And uh, finally, a thank you. Thank you to our listeners that have supported us over these last seven years. You've shared the show when you have heard something that uh, you thought uh, a friend or a colleague got to hear. And that's extraordinarily valuable, both not only to them, but to our guests. We're here to celebrate the great work of business leaders in our community like Richard. That Their work is terrific, and that work deserves to be found. So if you can help us help them um, and that helps us fulfill our mission to be the voice of business in the North Fulton region. Thank you. So for my guest, Richard Morgan, I'm John Ray. Join us next time here on North Fulton Business Radio.